I don't know if you've ever noticed, but uh, we cast a lot of our lives in terms of uh, feelings. For instance, this last week, uh, Colin Kaepernick, who's one of the uh, quarterbacks for the San Francisco 49ers, or at least he was, I don't know, is he still today? Anyway, uh, Kaepernick ignited a huge controversy over his decision to not stand during the national anthem at the beginning of football games. And Kaepernick said that his decision was based on his strongly held feelings about America's oppression of black people and other people of color. So based on his feelings, he says. His coach, Chip Kelly, said that the team, listen, quote, recognizes his right to express his feelings. Radio and TV commentators all week long have been expressing their feelings about Kaepernick's feelings. A lot of talk about feelings, isn't there? People make all sorts of significant life decisions on the basis of their feelings. I've asked a lot of men and women over the years you know, who, who left their job, why did you decide to leave your job? And, and I always received some variation of the answer. I just felt like it was time to go. We feel angry, we lash out. We feel entitled, we grab for something. We feel upset, we eat. Everything in our world, at least on the surface seems to turn on the intensity and the velocity of our feelings. But the only reason that it seems that way is that as a culture, we've been losing our minds. And and what I mean by that is just this, that in the sheer pace and the clutter of contemporary life, we just don't have the time or the energy to consider how many of our feelings and our actions are actually governed by the ideas that we have about life. And so we live our lives on autopilot. We feel stuff, and then we act on those feelings, but we never pay attention to the idea systems that drive those feelings. Here's how one person put it. He said, we wake up already in motion in this life. The raft is already out on the river and the current simply carries us along. There are these idea systems that affect us, that affect what we feel and affect the decisions that we make, but most of us are completely unaware of those idea systems. The passage that we're going to look at this morning is going to uncover two terribly destructive Fallen idea systems that while no one uh, could have named them at the moment that these are being revealed to us in the Bible, no one could have named them. These idea systems have still been around since the fall of man, and they drive our feelings and our actions at least to some extent. But it's not enough to just uncover those idea systems. We have to replace them with something. And so not only are we going to see these two idea systems that affect so many of us, we're also going to see what to replace them with. That's where we're going to end up this morning. So if you have a Bible this morning, I'd like for you to turn with me in it to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 and verse 12. I want to thank everybody who's listening to us on our app. By the way, if you don't know, we have a City Church app. You can download it on your smartphone. And there's all sorts of stuff you can do on that app. But one of which is that we have the sermon notes on that app. So you can follow along the stuff that we put up on the screen. You can follow along uh, right on that app on your smartphone or your iPad or whatever uh, you use. So we've been looking uh, at the last days of Jesus for a number of weeks now 
from the last half of the book of Mark, and we've made our way to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. It's Thursday evening. I don't know if you know this, but the, but the church calendar used to call that Maundy Thursday. So it's Maundy Thursday. It's the night before Jesus is crucified. And I want to begin the reading from verse 12 of Mark chapter 14. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Now, in the interest of time, I'm just going to summarize what happens next. Jesus sends a couple of disciples out, uh, gives them some very specific directions to find a very specific room that he wanted them uh, to celebrate uh, the Passover in. And they find exactly the room that he was describing. And I want you to skip now to verse 17. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12, 12 disciples. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they were saddened. And one by one, they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It's one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go, just as is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Let's stop there for now. I just want to say, say one thing. It's really interesting to me how, how uh, you know, when the disciples are sitting around the table, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And all those guys, I mean, I'm impressed with their optimism and their confidence. They're all like, surely you're not talking about me. If I would have been sitting there, at that table, and Jesus would have said that, I would have gone, I know, it's me. I, I know, I know it's me. I'm going to be the one that betrays you. So, I mean, I'm fascinated that these guys have such high uh, self-confidence, I guess. For clarity's sake, let's just make it clear that the person that Jesus is referring to here in these verses is Judas. And Judas' betrayal of Jesus comes out of an idea system that I'm going to call this morning... Religious pragmatism. Religious pragmatism. Now, what, is that, what does that mean? Religious pragmatism. Well, stick with me here for just a moment. Those of you who've been with us, I want you to remember that since the halfway point of the book of Mark, when Peter suddenly realizes and declares that Jesus is the Messiah, ever since that moment, Jesus has been consistently and regularly telling the disciples that he is going to suffer and die. Now, the reason that he keeps repeating this is that he wants the disciples to know that his plan isn't what they think his plan is. They think that his plan is to fulfill their nationalistic political expectations. And so like all of Israel, the disciples think that the Messiah is going to, he's going to overthrow Rome and he's going to make Israel the ruling kingdom of the world. And so all of the disciples are busy measuring their new offices in Jesus' government for their furniture. They're going to ride his coattails to the top. That's what they're thinking. Jesus wants them to understand that's not what's going to happen. But it appears that Judas, of all of the disciples, Judas figures this out before the others do. He figures, he's like, man, there's not going to be any powerful political positions, not going to be any corner offices. And so he sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. We saw that earlier in this chapter. 
Now, I want to give you a definition of pragmatism, and I want you to see if this sounds like the idea system that Judas is working from when he decides to sell Jesus out, all right? See if this is what Judas is working from. Here's pragmatism. Pragmatism is the notion that ideas may be judged by their practical consequences. A pragmatist concludes that a course of action or concept is right if it brings good results, wrong if it doesn't seem to work. Isn't that what Judas is all about? Nod your heads if you think yes. That's what Judas is all about. He's using, see, he's, he's been using Jesus as a means to an end. And as long as Judas gets, excuse me, as long as Jesus gets Judas where Judas wants to go, Judas is in. But as soon as he realizes that Jesus isn't going to get him there, Judas sells out. That's the very essence of pragmatism. That's the very essence of pragmatism. Now, I suspect that there are some of you here today that that think to yourselves, well, you know, okay, that was Judas. That's not me. I'm not affected by pragmatism in my spiritual. I'm I'm not affected by religious pragmatism. That doesn't affect me any. There's something interesting about the way that Jesus approaches this whole issue of his betrayer that I wonder if you noticed. As he's sitting around the table, he's talking to the disciples. There's something very interesting about this that I wonder if you noticed. And instead of just telling you what it is that's so interesting, I want to I let you feel what I think the men, in, the 12 disciples in that room were feeling. Okay? And so I, I, I'm going to set you up. I'm gonna give you a, a, I want you to imagine something with me. I want you to imagine that you've been to your doctor for your annual checkup. And, you know, as part of that annual checkup, you know how they stick you with needles and they draw blood samples, all of the vampire-like stuff that they like to do to you at a doctor's office. You have all those things done. A few days pass, and you get a call from the doctor's office that they need you to come in because the doctor wants to speak with you about your results. Now, what are you feeling in that moment? You're feeling alarmed, right? I mean, this can't be good. No one likes to hear that. And so because you're so alarmed, you, you, know, you ask the person who calls you, you, say, you ask them, you say, is something wrong? And she says to you, she says, to be honest, I don't really know, but I will tell you this, that 12 sets of tests came back today and one of them showed cancer. What are you feeling? Like, what are you feeling in that moment? Twelve different people's sets of tests came back. One of them showed cancer. What are you feeling? Well, that, that feeling is what I want you to experience because I think that's what, this, what the men in this room were feeling. Because if you notice, Jesus was intentionally ambiguous about who the betrayer is. Did you notice that? He just says, he says, one of you. He didn't say, he didn't say Judas specifically. He says, he says, one of you is going to betray me. And he left it ambiguous. And did you notice what happened next? Verse 19, they were saddened. And one by one, they said to him, surely you don't mean me. One by one, every one of them. There's a, I think there's a false bravado there. 
in their voice that you can kind of hear. Surely you don't, you don't mean me. Like there's a question mark at the end. There's like a false bravado. There's a question in their voice. There's doubt there. Maybe, maybe, it, maybe it is me. Now why is Jesus so ambiguous about this? Here's why. His, ambigu- his ambiguity forces every single one of them to do some serious self-examination. Like, could it be me? And that little bit of doubt reveals what Jesus wants them to see in themselves. That yes, look, if you're honest with yourself under the right set of circumstances, it could be you. Judas turns out to be the betrayer. But Jesus wants them to see that there's a little Judas in all of them. And what if you did some serious self-examination? Would you find a little Judas in you? Like Judas, I'm going to say that like Judas, there is something out there that you want from Jesus. I don't know what it is. But you're like, you're like I'm all in, Jesus. I'm a, I'm a follower. I'm all in. But understand, Jesus, that you better keep your part of the bargain. Like, I'm all in as long as you get me where I want to go. But what would happen if he doesn't get you there? Would you sell out? Listen to this. Very well-known Christian uh, psychologist by the name of Larry Crabb wrote a a book, uh, I don't know, probably five or ten years ago. He wrote this book. It was called The Pressure's Off. And and really what he's writing about, he, he never names it, but what he's writing about is the religious pragmatism that he believes has invaded American evangelicalism. And he writes this. He says, I have no strategies in mind to give you a better marriage, better kids, a more complete recovery from sexual abuse, or quicker healing after your divorce, nor, I believe, does God. Now, if there's a part of you that is thinking right now, well then, what's the point? That's the Judas in you. That's the pragmatist in you. But Crab goes on. He says, instead of a better life, we're offered a better hope of intimacy with God, a relationship that carries us through and not around pain and loss. Now, he's saying something very important. I think, look, I, I'll be honest with you. I think he exaggerates his point a little bit. I do believe that the Bible has much to say that can help our marriages and that can, that can uh, help us recover from traumas and things. I do. I believe that. But I think, I don't, but I don't want you to miss what he's saying here. And maybe, maybe it's best I just ask it like this. What, what he's really saying is, what if the thing that you're really looking for in life? What if the greatest treasure of life isn't a better marriage or better kids or having a child in the first place or a more flush bank account 
or whatever, whatever it is out there that you're using Jesus as a means to an end for. What if, what if, what if those aren't the greatest treasure of life? What if the greatest, most valuable, most beautiful treasure that life has to offer anyone is more of Jesus himself? What if? I think the reason that Jesus wants to expose out my religious pragmatism, our religious pragmatism, your religious pragmatism, the disciples' religious pragmatism, I think the reason he wants to expose it is that he knows what we don't know, and that is the terrible cost of religious pragmatism. Judas, he wanted power and wealth. He was in as long as Jesus took him there. But as soon as Jesus was, as soon as he realized that's not where Jesus is going and that's not where he's going to get to go with Jesus, he sells him out. See, Judas wanted, he, he, he wanted power and wealth. He never really got the power. But he got the wealth, 30 pieces of silver. That's nothing to sneeze at. But, oh, the cost. Jesus says in this passage, woe to that man who betrays the son of man who sells out for something other than Jesus. In just a few hours, Judas will find himself 30 pieces of silver richer, but spiritually and socially cut off from the most profound love that he has ever known, emotionally racked with guilt, and psychologically so disconnected from reality that the best thing that he can think to do is to kill himself. Woe to the man who is a sellout. You may not be a full-blown Judas, but to the extent that you are, Whatever it is that you're selling out for, it's fool's gold. It's fool's gold. Religious pragmatism is an evil idea system that Satan uses to keep you disillusioned and discouraged with life and away from the very greatest treasure that life has to offer. And the best thing that you could do today is a little soul searching and acknowledge that, yeah, there's there's a little Judas in me. To figure out what it is that you would sell Jesus out for. And to count the cost. Okay, that's religious pragmatism. It's a a terrible, evil, fallen, destructive idea system that the enemy uses to dominate your life. I want to look at the second one. It's religious individualism. Religious individualism. Skip ahead. Uh, in the passage to verse 27, we'll come back to the intervening verses in just a moment. Verse 27, Jesus is speaking again to his disciples. He tells them, he says, you will all fall away. In other words, when, he's, when he goes through his suffering, he says, you're all going to fall away. Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Those are the disciples, the sheep. But after I have risen, Jesus says, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. (laughs) Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me 
three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Jesus tells all of his disciples in verse 27, in verse 27 that, that his suffering is going to cause them to all uh, fall away. They're all going to run away. But Peter cannot believe that about himself. And so in verse 29, <laughs> he throws all of his fellow disciples under the bus. And he says, yeah, look, they might all fall away, but not me. You can count on me, Jesus. And then even after Jesus gets very specific with Peter, and he says, dude, Here's exactly how it's going to go down. The rooster's going to crow. You're going to deny me. three times. Peter says, nope, not me. I'll die with you. And then the rest of the guys, not wanting to look like dopes, all said, yeah, us too. What he said, we're not going to, we're not going to fall away. What Peter, what the rest of the disciples don't understand is that what they're about to go through is something that is uh, more than just a tough time, exponentially more than just a tough time. They're going to stare into the face of pure evil very soon. Spiritual warfare, if you will. And Jesus is saying to them, you guys don't know what's coming your way. You think you're tough enough on your own. You think you're committed enough on your own to handle this spiritual warfare, to to stare down the face of evil. But you're not. And so rather than calling on spiritual resources, you're going to get through this. You're going to try to get through this by toughing it out on your own. And every one of you, and you, Peter, you're going to fail miserably. But Peter, nor any of the other disciples, believed Jesus. Why? It's because they're under the spell of a a very human idea system. Now, I will, again, I, I want to make sure you understand this. I will grant you that nobody named this philosophical uh, idea system uh, for a long time after this happened. They, they wouldn't have been able to give you a name for it. But it's been around since the beginning of time. And it's called religious individualism. Actually, it's called individualism. I'm adding the religious part to it. And the idea behind individualism is that you can't depend on anyone else. Whoever you turn out to be in this life, whatever you get in this life, it's all on you and no one else because there are no spiritual forces out there. There's no one out there that you can actually depend upon. And this is the idea system out of which Peter and the other disciples are acting with such bravado. And just like Jesus said, we know from the Gospels that they all ran away in fear at the first sign of blood. Can you you see any of this religious individualism in you? Because it, it's, it's there in you. You know, it, I think just as it was most clearly seen in Peter's failure, I think it's most clearly seen in our failures too. I mean, I struggle with this. We all struggle with this religious individualism. We've all been affected by this idea system. It's that part of you that either believes that you're a good enough person on your own that you really don't need Jesus. 
like when it, you know, when the time comes that, you know, you die and, you know, whatever happens after that, you think to yourself, I'm good enough. I'm a good person. I'm, I'm fine. Jesus is going to, God's going to let me in. Either you believe that, or you're the kind of person that refuses to believe that Jesus' death on the cross was enough to pay for your moral failures. Like when you fail in some big way, you know, you sin, you do something that, you know, it's like you've done it a thousand times before and you never seem to quit doing this, whatever it is. You're like, you know, instead of just saying, look, Jesus died on the cross for that. And that that was enough. Instead of that, you're like, you're like, no, I, I got to pay my own penance. I can't just depend on Jesus. I got I to gotta earn my way back into God's uh, 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 good graces. I got to do it myself. I can't, I can't just depend on Jesus. And so, like religious pragmatism, the problem is that religious individualism keeps you away from the very best treasure in life, Jesus. It's like a It's like a stiff arm to Jesus that just leaves you shackled with guilt, drowning in fetid pools of shame, and fearful at the core of your soul that someday you might fail and be no better than the others. Or that in the end, Jesus might not want you because you just haven't done enough. That's where religious individualism takes anyone who has been influenced by it. Two terribly destructive, fallen idea systems that all of us are plagued by to a greater or lesser extent, religious pragmatism and religious individualism. But it's not enough to just identify these fallen idea systems. We have to replace them with something. I mean, you know, uh, if you've been around here at City Church for a while, you've heard us use this word, um, unlearn. And what, we're, what we mean by that is that when you come to a relationship with Jesus Christ, there's a great deal about life that you think you know that you have to unlearn. Because when you come to Jesus, he turns everything upside down. He, he takes those old idea systems that have driven your life, and he, and he says, no, here's, here's, here's something new. And so when you unlearn it, you have to recognize that that idea system is there, and then you have to replace it with something better. And I want to look now at what the something better is. We have to replace those idea systems with something. Or, or, or they come back into our lives more powerful than ever. Let's close with this. Go back to verse 22. Verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This dinner that they're eating is referred to earlier in the passage. We saw it back in verse 12. It's referred to as the Passover. The Passover. And some of you may remember that what the Passover commemorated was how God delivered 
ancient Israel from slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. God tells Moses, essentially, he says that he's going to bring a kind of mini preview of the judgment on Pharaoh in Egypt. In other words, a mini preview of the final judgment. He's going to bring it on Pharaoh, and he's going to bring it on all of Egypt. And he says that every firstborn child in Egypt was going to die. Now listen, understand something. Israel, the people of Israel, they lived in Egypt too. So when God says, I'm going to bring this on all of Egypt, on everyone who lives in Egypt, this judgment, it includes you. Nobody can survive, Nobody can survive on their own. Everybody's in danger. Because if God brings judgment on just one night, if God brings judgment, everybody's in danger. Nobody survives just because they're this ethnicity or that ethnicity or because they live like this or because they live like that. And so God says to Moses, the only way your people will survive, the people of Israel, is if every family kills a lamb, eats it that night, and puts the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their home. Because when justice comes by, that is the only thing that will save you. You won't be able to stand out in front of the house and say, we're Jews. That won't work. You won't be able to stay, uh, stand outside of the house and say, well, we are really good people. That's not going to work. The only thing that's going to save you is the blood of that lamb. That's it. Justice, if it sees that, Blood on your doorpost, justice will pass over your home. Thus the, the name, Passover. Now back to Mark chapter 14. Here are the 12 disciples, along with Jesus, commemorating the Passover. And Jesus gets up to bless the food. And when he blesses the food, you can see what the... You can see what foods he blessed. There's the bread. All, the, uh, all Passover meals had bread. There's the wine. All Passover meals had wine. But not one of the Gospels ever talks about the main course. There's no mention of a lamb being there. Well, that's stupid. What kind of meal is this without a main course? Why isn't there a lamb there? The lamb was there. There was no lamb on the table because the lamb of God was at the table. Jesus, the lamb of God, was the main course. And so when Jesus tells the disciples to eat bread and to drink the cup, Jesus is saying, just as the only way that anyone in Israel could be saved was to be sheltered under the blood of a sacrificed lamb, so the only way that you can be saved is through the sacrifice of this lamb. Just as Israel's salvation wasn't about their ethnicity or their performance or their morality or their goodness, so your salvation isn't about those things either. It has nothing to do with you, and it has everything to do with me. And what Jesus is teaching here is the foundational principle behind the gospel, the idea of substitutionary sacrifice. The disciples needed a substitute, someone to stand in for them. And Jesus was saying that he will be that substitute. You need a substitute. Someone who will stand in for you. And Jesus says, I will be that substitute. 
Do you see, can you see the beauty of the gospel? This is what the gospel, this is what you need to replace the destructive and the fallen ideas of religious pragmatism and religious individualism with. Sure, the gospel is more than an idea system, but it's not less than an idea system. Where pragmatism leaves you disillusioned and discouraged because you think God didn't give you what you thought you wanted, the gospel says that God is giving you exactly what you've always wanted in Jesus. He is the meal. He is the bread of life. He is the treasure. He is the beauty of life. And where individualism says that God's blessings on your life depend upon the strength of your commitment and your faith and your obedience and nothing else, the gospel says that God's blessings have nothing to do with your commitment and your obedience. It has everything to do with Jesus' commitment and Jesus' obedience. That's the gospel. Do you believe that? Here's how you know if you believe that. When something goes wrong in your life, like when something bad happens to you, do you find yourself wondering if God is punishing you for something? Oh, come on. I know that a lot of you think that way. Something goes wrong and you're like, oh, God must be, what did I do? And you start looking back over your shoulder. You're like, what did I do? And if you're like me, you can find, well, there's a trillion things I've done that are bad. What, what, which one is he punishing me for? Okay. If you think that way, if you start wondering if God is punishing you, either you don't believe the gospel at all, or you haven't worked the implications of the gospel into your life. You're still a pragmatist disappointed that you didn't get what you wanted when you've already been given everything you could ever want in Jesus. And you're still an individualist thinking that bad things have happened because you didn't obey enough. You weren't committed enough because that's what all of God's blessings in your life depend on. It has to be you. You either don't believe in the gospel at all or you haven't worked it in. And see, you have to work it in. It's not enough. My belt is coming undone here. It's not enough to. Um, it's not. It's not enough to just hear the gospel once and respond to it. You've got to. You've got to work it in. You got to preach it to yourself all the time. When things go right, you preach the gospel to yourself by reminding yourself the reason things are going right isn't because of my obedience. Because God's blessings in my life don't depend upon my obedience. And when things go wrong, you don't go, well, God must be punishing me. See, it's not about your disobedience. You remind yourself that whether things go right or wrong, you have Jesus, which is all your soul has ever wanted. And until you believe that, and until you work it into your life, you'll never experience the deep and the profound transformation that only the gospel can bring into a person's life. And another way that you work the gospel in is by taking communion. That was what Jesus wanted to do. He wanted to work the gospel in to these guys. And we're going to take communion in just a moment. But 
You know, I said that if you don't understand, if you don't work the gospel in, you'll never experience the profound transformation that God can bring into your life. I want to circle back to the very beginning of my talk and and Colin Kaepernick and the issue of racism. I want you to think about this. Despite all of the education and despite all of the speeches and despite uh, all of the protests and all of the governmental legislation about racism, racism is still a present reality in America. I would like to suggest to you that not only will pragmatism and individualism not fix racism, I would like to suggest to you that they are part of the problem. And that the only hope for the eradication of racism in the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ that we celebrate and that we preach to ourselves when we take communion. There's an old saying that the dividing line between good and evil goes right through the center of every human heart. And when we take communion, we remind ourselves that what makes the world a terrible, violent, dehumanizing place to live in isn't out there somewhere. It's in here. It's in me. It's my sin. It's my evil. And let me tell you something, when you understand that, I know of nothing that can heal racism like the radical egalitarianism of the gospel that says everybody, no matter your ethnicity, no matter, no matter your skin color, everybody is a sinner and everyone needs the grace of Jesus Christ. And until you get that, until people understand that, racism will never be dealt with in this country. Only the gospel can heal our nation of the racism that is still prevalent in our country. Ushers, if you guys would, and ladies, if you would come up and if you guys would just pass out the elements. And here's the way we do it here at City Church. Anybody can participate. You might be here your first time. Feel free to participate in communion with us. But do this for us. Just when they pass the elements out, they'll, you know, they'll pass a cup with some juice. They'll pass bread And if you would just hold those in your hands, I'm going to come up and say something, and we'll all take it together as a church, okay? But I'd like for you to just think about the implications of the gospel for your life that is only because of the blood and the body of Jesus Christ that you can be saved and that you can experience the profound transformation that Jesus Christ wants to give you. And that this thing that we're going to do celebrates the only thing that will solve a very relevant and current problem in our nation today. Racism. That's how relevant the gospel is today. Hold on to the elements and we'll take it together in just a moment.